Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm, Lena. How are you doing these days? Hello, Steve. I'm well. It's been busy. Uh, I've been at the University of Toronto for a few months now. It's a bit of a, a learning curve, and it's grant writing season, so it's a it's a whole new experience for myself. So a little bit tired, but happy tired. You know? Yeah, yeah. That uh, grant grants will exhaust someone, anyone really. <laughs> Uh, so I guess the question I have for you this day is Simver? Yes. So, I mean, that definitely doesn't add to my, that def is, a, is a reason for the exhaustion, but in, again, a good way. Uh, the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research held their annual forum in mm -hmm. Gatineau this year. Um, so that was last week, a week ago today, and it, I, there must have been between eight and 900 delegates there, um, really jam-packed agenda, research, mostly, you know, health-based, but it spanned populations right across. I was able to participate in um, a presentation, I delivered a presentation, some work that I had previously done, looking at the literature of how men who've experienced military sexual trauma, how they access uh, supports and services for that trauma. So it was interesting to be able to share that in a big room of very interested parties. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, it was well received. It was interesting to be able to, to share this with some defense folks um, and some, you know, defense researchers to really, you know, identify where some of those population gaps are. So I was very thankful for that opportunity. Excellent. And did you do heaps of networking along the way? Of course I didn't. <laughs> it was really great uh, to be able to see colleagues that I've met over the years. Uh, a lot of people that I've, you know, you spend a lot of time emailing, connecting through Zoom. So it was nice to, you know, meet people and see people in, in person and meet some, meet some new folks. Uh, it's definitely... Uh, a great opportunity for networking, but it is very exhausting that way. The, we, they plan uh, early morning workshops that most people do attend starting at 7.30. Yeah, 7.30, uh, that's just crazy. Seven, oh, 7.30. Um, fortunately, this year, I wasn't um, part of a team that delivered a workshop because in the past, I've had to deliver workshops. So even attending workshops at 7.30 is, uh, is, a, is an early start. 
And then the agenda for presentations typically ran until six. So it's a really, it's a really long day. And then they usually plan uh, social events after. So really, really long days, um, but really an invigorating time, I think. So it was a bit different this year. Um, I've gone in the past as a, as a student or a postdoc. Uh, this time it's a, a little bit different. So it was really neat to be able to see people who I've known for many years to tell them that I've landed at the University of Toronto. And what kind of folks show up at Simver? Uh, defense folks, so health services, uh, folks that from DGMPRA that research uh, personnel, health-related issues, universities, a lot of um, uh, organizations that are that support military and, and veteran families mm-hmm. uh, show up there. Uh, the MFRCs uh, usually have a really good, strong presence there. MFRCs, also, what's that? Yeah, oh, sorry, the, the um, Military Family Resource Center. So there are these organizations that are affiliated with the, the military. And they're there's uh, an MFRC that is across uh, attached to every uh, base and wing across Canada and internationally, and they support families um, as well as veterans that are, are transitioning out. So it's great to see that they are invested in, in research and programs and, and are willing to, to meet and collaborate with, with those of us that are uh, doing some of the, the, the researchy type of, of work. So it's great to see them. Um, there's also a large contingent of folks that are doing work around the health and well-being of uh, public safety personnel. So there's a, a big group from the University of Regina, that's what's where SIPCERT is based out of. They're sort of the sister organization to Simber. So there's a lot of researchers that are looking at uh, public safety personnel and their families. Uh, Dr. Hetty Cram and her group, which I'm a part of, I'm proud to say that did uh, a big family roundtable on Monday morning. Um, and it's people that are invested in supporting families from military and veteran and PSP uh, uh, occupations. And so I remember my first Simber, we sat around and it was maybe 20 people sitting in chairs at the end of Simber, you know, talking about what we're doing and how we can collaborate to support families. Uh, this time it was a jam-packed room of well over, I'd say about 200 people that are invested in families. So it's really great for for the work, uh, uh, for to support the work that work those of us that are working in the areas of family. So uh, lots of different people, lots of interest, um, and it just seems to be getting bigger and bigger. We'll see how many people make it next year. It's uh, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Hmm. I'm excited to go, never been to Winnipeg. So that'll be great. Um, but yeah, it's always a, an exhausting and exhilarating couple of days. And I know that you had, you were hosting an event um, uh, for a couple of days after uh, Simber this week in at Carleton. Yes, the timing was coincidental. Uh, we had the meeting of the minds. Uh, minds, which stands for Mobilizing Insights in Defense and Security, or on Defense and mm-hmm. Security, I forget which, uh, is D&D's academic outreach folks. And they fund, they partly fund the CDSN, uh, and they fund eight other networks uh, across Canada on a range of issues. And mm-hmm. we applied to them for some money to host 
the meeting of the minds, which was bringing together the nine networks and the folks at ADM Policy. Uh, That's great. The uh, minds is within ADM Policy, but uh, most of the folks at ADM Policy haven't really interacted with us that much. So this was a chance to get the nine networks they fund, which includes you know one in space, uh, one on high tech, um, one on military uh, sexual trauma, one on uh, transforming military culture. <clears throat> Excuse me. One on transforming a military culture. Uh, one on that's a network for strategic analysis. The one focused on the Arctic, the CDSN, and a couple others. Anyway, so we brought together the project directors of most of those networks. We brought together their coordinators, that is their staffers who do a lot of heavy lifting. Uh-huh. Uh, we try to get grad students from each one of them. And in exchange, the minds people brought a fair amount of director generals and directors and other people from across ADM policy. So that way we can talk to the policy types and tell them what we're discovering about policy and what we're researching. And they could tell us what their priorities are, which might inform our future research projects. Um, and we had, so the first day was us having roundtables about our research uh, so they could figure out what we're up to. And then we had the deputy minister speak um, and that led to a really robust q and I can't say what he said uh-huh. because of all Chatham House rules, uh, but he, he was fairly open about a variety of things. And then we had somebody else from ADM policy tell us what their priorities are, what they, how they work. Uh, and then the next day we alternated between panels of graduate students presenting their research oh, and great. project coordinators telling us the lessons they've learned about reporting, developing an institutional memory, uh, event planning, how to get an audience, things like that. And then the last panel of the directors themselves, uh, including myself, uh, discussing uh, the, the challenges of being a collaborative network um, and the challenges of working with D&D. Uh, so it was a really good set of conversations. Uh, everybody came away from it uh, pretty enthused and, and even thinking about sequels uh, to this kind of thing. So I, I definitely think it was very much worth the effort. Uh, it was also a lot of fun to hang out with such smart, uh, curious people. So uh, yeah, that's what we did last week. Uh, and then right afterwards, I hopped on a plane. Uh, I am um, in where, South Korea. Yes. How's that been for you? Uh, Is that your first time? No, it's my second time. I was here about five years ago. Uh, last time I was here, I was asking about what, whether their National Assembly engaged in much oversight over their armed forces. And we found mm. out that uh, South Korea is sort of in the middle. Uh, oh, okay. Less, doing less oversight than the American Congress or the German Bundestag. Okay. But more oversight than many other countries, including Canada. Uh, and so it was a fun intermediate case. And now I'm back here asking related but different questions. Um, we submitted the book manuscript for the comparative legislature's project last okay. week. And this week we are starting the next project, which is uh, defense agencies. What, what role do defense agencies see for themselves? in their country's civil-military relations. So we would expect them to think that their job is oversight, but not. Uh, but uh, that is not something that the Canadian Department of National Defense, nor do the military think that is their job. They don't 
they don't think that the D&D's job is to do oversight. And then since I know Parliament doesn't do oversight, it's like, who uh-huh. oversees the Canadian Air Forces? And the military will say, it's the minister's job. I'm like, minister is just one person. So, so it'll be interesting for you to map out what other countries, what that relationship looks like for for other nations to be able right. to see, you know, what works, what doesn't, you know, the, the cultural differences in that. So I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to to hearing about the the progress that you've made as as you, you know, tap into your different different networks. Yep, yeah, we're going to be going around the world. Me, Phil Agasse, and Ora Zekali. Phil is, is currently in New Zealand finishing up his his role in that case study. Uh, and Ora hasn't begun to travel for this thing yet, but will eventually. Uh, so uh, definitely really excited about this project. Uh, I've had one interview thus far, had one today. It was interesting. Uh, a good a good starting point for the research. I'm I'm very happy with the way That's things great. are going as far. Yeah. And how long is this research? How long is this project going to be running? Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, we got a five year grant, but sure, grants you always renew for one year, so six maybe. Right. Uh, okay. And the challenge is that the last project, well, we started in around 2015, and I just submitted the manuscripts. So That's it eight years and the, the project is far from over since we're probably going to be told we have to do some revisions before we uh, before yeah we, absolutely uh, accepted so we have to wait to hear from the reviewers on that but anyway i'm hoping that the research will, takes three years or so and then we'll see how quickly we can come together on a common story and and put that into the writing yeah the writing that part yes well best of luck to you and the team thank you uh that's enough about us let's talk about the world around us uh so many issues to talk about and we decided we would talk about uh two issues uh there was the ombudsman blasted uh dnt and we have CSIS blast universities so let's go blasting a lot of of soapboxing yes yes so the first story has the ombudsman criticizing the military for not taking care of those people who helped us in Afghanistan, that we had Canadians Af- uh-huh. uh, that, uh, from Va- Afghanistan who had Afghan the skill set to help us in Afghanistan, who, uh, when they came back home, did not get the same kind of benefits as regular army types. So even though they spent much more time in the field uh, uh-huh. than anybody that we deployed to Kent, uh, to Kandahar because they were there and they stayed there for tour after tour after tour. Um, they were wounded. They were exposed to a moral injury and to post-traumatic stress. And yet the procedures to help them out aren't terrific. Uh, what was your reaction to this story? So I seem to be missing some information. So I uh, understand that they're not federal government employees. They're contracts and but given the who they worked for, so I'm wondering why the federal government wasn't supporting them. So, like, I just feel like you know I'm missing a bit of information there. But so what has been done is because they weren't getting support, you know, uh, rehab support, uh, therapy support through the federal government. Uh, these individuals were their cases were passed on for WSIB and you know the from what I understand they were getting support with 
completing the applications. So now the responsibility is at the doorstep of the the Workplace Safety Insurance Board in Ontario. So that's assuming that everyone that went over to support our troops in Afghanistan were from Ontario. Um, I don't know what happens to those folks that resided in other provinces. That's for another time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what was interesting is that WSIB, despite having uh, documentation and assessments for mental health professionals, uh, it sounds like many of these cases were sort of passed over or rejected for support, uh, which I find interesting because they are not too dissimilar from a lot of the complex cases that a lot of public safety personnel uh, claim for from WSIB there is, you know, presumptive legislation, which is in place where you don't have to quote unquote prove, it's just the nature of your job, increases your exposure to uh, risk and injury. Uh, And it sounds like, of course, these individuals that helped our our troops in Afghanistan were exposed to to this, if not more. So I just don't understand as a healthcare provider myself and someone who's connected to a, a PSP family, where how the ball was dropped or how these cases aren't as supported as as they seem to be so there's lots of holes that i'm seeing a lot of information that i think i'm missing and not quite understanding but it almost doesn't surprise me that these folks have had an uphill battle to try to get what they need and deserve through the wsib in ontario i just that's my little that's my soapbox today that I'm in, I'm in agreement with what the ombudsman seems to be, to be saying. Yeah, I'm not terribly surprised that these folks felt, folks fell through the cracks because they're not standard, right? They're not, they're not members of the military, so I have a playbook for them. They're, they're not, uh, you know, ordinary civil servants for which we have rules and procedures. They're contractors, and one reason why we use contractors is it allows governments to make decisions and treat so we can people. you know wipe our hands pretty much for any sort I mean, of responsibility I, which is horrible that, that might not have been the intent in this case although it's in the intent in other cases uh but it does mean that the government doesn't have a, a set of procedures doesn't have a set of standards well it seems to be playing along with that playbook right like hey their contractors just like a lot of contract positions that you know we're not fully responsible for all their care and benefits so i mean yes there's no clear playbook on how to manage you know contractors that are exposed in these high conflict zones come back with these these injuries but i think that there needs to be something in in place definitely for for the sacrifices they've made you would think uh but uh we tended to you know move on and not look backwards and that's a challenge because we have plenty of people who Engaged in tremendous costs uh, to to help Canada in that in that conflict, uh, and it's going to be hard to get help in the future if this is the way we treat the treat those that help us. So there's a Absolutely. national interest consideration as well as just a moral uh, obligation. Narrative. Yeah, and is it because the numbers are so small that they seem right? Like I just I, I I'm not quite sure. Like again, I'm likely missing chunks of information like how this got passed from you know as a federal responsibility to one that's provincial and what the issue is at the WSIB level like I just I feel like I'm missing information but I still feel like I have enough to be able to have a fairly 
clear opinion about the situation? Well, if you're a political scientist, you'd be more cynical about the ability for uh, bureaucracies to adapt to non-standard circumstances. I start need to start thinking like you folks then. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it's healthy. <laughs> well, I, I've done some peripheral work around uh, presumptive legislation, WSIB cases as related to first responders and how they have been able to access or not access uh, mm. benefits from them and what those benefits look like. So who has sort of gone through the rounds, like who they get sent to and how successful that is. And, you know, that, that system within itself is not great, but at least bare minimum, the bar is very low, Steve, that they're getting some sort of help. I just cannot wrap my head around how these folks can't get in the door with proper documentation. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, also, I get that. I, uh, right. So I just, I just, there's, there's a mismatch and, you know, I, and as a healthcare provider, I have a, I have a duty to, to help people as much as I can. Um, WSB is a really tricky system from like, I've had personal experience in my family around WSIB where it was, you know, uh, an injury that my partner had on the job um, doing the work that he does as a first responder and, even with proper documentation from surgeons and all that, his case got rejected. Um, mm. And that was a physical injury. It was very sort of, I think, you know, for the lack of a better word, sort of very cut and dry, very clear. Um, I cannot imagine what these folks are going through when there's such high complex injuries that they're trying to get support for. Um, so I've got a bit of healthy cynicism, I think, from a personal perspective. Well, speaking of healthy cynicism, uh, yes. let's move on to talk about uh, CSIS and universities. Uh -huh. uh, CSIS, uh, the, the director of CSIS, I believe it was, came out and said that universities in Canada are uh, having these research uh, projects taking place between Canadian-based academics and those working at not just Chinese universities, but Chinese universities that are essentially owned by the Chinese military, saying that this yes. is bad. Um, and this you know, raises all kinds of questions about academic freedom versus national security. Uh, you know, we don't, neither you nor I work in a sector of the Correct. academic enterprise that would lead to uh, us aiding and abetting the enemy through uh, facilitating new uh, Technologies and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but we both work in universities and are concerned about mm -hmm. academic freedom. So, what's your take on this madness? Well, the I just it seems like there's a, a fine line that seems to have been crossed. It, I, I understand that you know all uh, you know a lot of countries they they'll spy. There's always some attempt to obtain information from. Um, other countries to sort of further your own personal agenda, but it just, it seems like it seems is being presented like it's very different with China because of that connection with the government and the universities that are, that are in partnership. Um, I, I don't know if universities are completely aware. Apparently China is quite transparent about this relationship. Um, so it is a bit worrisome because it just, it has seen, it takes on a bit of a different flavor, that there is this 
connection with the government that is a lot closer to these universities in China that are involved with these partnerships in Canada than they are in other nations. So, and I honestly don't think universities know what to do with that. I don't know what's your take. I think this is a, a problem uh, that that there can be lines that are, can be drawn um, that we should have greater awareness about our projects. I I have seen scientists talk about things where they're just completely uh, blasé or or were naively uh, ignorant about the projects they're doing and their implications. Yeah. It would seem to me that it's hard to have that these days on high tech projects that have military applications with uh, Japan. Oh, I'm sorry, with with China, and you would think that they would be aware of those complications and avoid those projects. But you know, part of it is that we're trained to share our research. We're trained, yes, we're trained to engage in thinking that is cooperative and all that and um it's hard to um tell people no they can't play cooperatively but i do think I that actually... we can we can separate some projects from others and suggest okay here's seven places in china you shouldn't be playing with I I, I think that's a really good idea. I think most academics are very collaborative in nature and they want to, to share the work that they do and, you know, contribute and develop knowledge. Um, I honestly don't think that most of us are aware of this, aren't aware of the fact that people might use the work that we do for nefarious, potentially nefarious reasons. So I think that better consultation I think universities, uh, their offices that oversee these partnerships need to be much more aware. I mean, I think individual researchers, sure. But I mean, as you and I both know, we can't know everything. But I think that given how things have shifted um, mm. over the past little bit, that there should be someone within the university who has a good handle, have their finger on the pulse of of different reasons why different nations might be investing in certain types of research. So maybe having a political scientist in the grants office or the funding offices might be a good idea to have, give that sort of healthy dose of reality to things that are coming through. Uh, I would appreciate it. Well, I I do think that you point to a solution here, which is that this should start with university grant offices um, that they should have the ability to, to develop some expertise on this rather than yes. rather than every scientist trying to memorize which seven schools in China are problematic. It should be the the research uh, grant the grants people in each of the Canadian universities should be able to figure out, okay, there are these seven schools that are problematic in China. Uh, and they should have, you know, consult with uh the relevant people at D&D uh, about what are the mm-hmm. problematic kinds of projects uh, and coordinate those two two lines of data so that way they don't let their scholars who are getting grant money to do research on high technology or sh- sharing them uh, the research enterprise with 
lean adversaries, namely China. Um, it shouldn't be that hard, but it, the thing is, is that this kind of vetting of research with certain countries was something that was done 30, sorry, 40 years ago, yeah, 35 years ago. This was typical Cold War behavior that our mm -hmm. allies and us created boards to restrict the flow of advanced technology to the Soviet Union. Uh, so there, there is a playbook out there. It's just dusty and it isn't in the, the career spans of pretty much anybody working uh, in government or in the private sector or in academia. Um, you know, 35, 30, yeah, 35 years is pretty much a career ago. So I can see why universities aren't, uh, don't have the specialized skills to figure this out, but yeah. it's not that hard to develop them. Uh, and it's, it, you know, people will shout about academic freedom and people have the freedom to do their research, but there is some restriction on, there can be, I think, some restriction on the doing advanced technological stuff with uh, our country's adversaries. I think that uh, is a reasonable restriction, uh, but there'll be some people who believe that all science should be cooperative and it is a great unifier. And if we could all just do our science together, then we'd all be happy uh, together. But that that's a naivete. I don't think that we can afford these days with China, the government of China being so aggressive. Uh, yeah. I think that um, we've come up with some really great solutions to solve the world's problems, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Our interview today is with Matt Malone. He's a professor out at West at Thompson's River. Uh, we talked about uh, his open by default initiative, which is he's trying to collect all of the ATIP documents. That is, all these requests have been made of the government to release information and put them all in one spot. So that way, anybody who wants to get access to any of these things that we've been given access to can get access to. Um, this is imitating what's happened elsewhere. For instance, in the United States, there's something called the National Security Archive, which has been a private actor that has been collecting uh, documents that have been declassified in the national security space. And he's doing something similar. So we talked about that initiative. Uh, and it was always a pleasure to hang out with Matt since he was a participant in the Summer Institute uh, just a few months ago. So that's our interview uh, coming up next. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have Matt Malone, a veteran of this summer, Summer Institute. I make it sound like we uh, threw him into the battlefield. Uh, Matt, uh, he's a professor at Thompson Rivers University out in Kamloops. How you doing? Really well. How are you? Doing pretty well. So before we get into what we're going to talk about today, since you're such a big fan of the Summer Institute, uh, let me ask you, what did you get out of it? 
Oh, I got amazing connections with folks in CAF, in government, uh, with academics dispersed all over the place. It was it was really good. I, I really thank you guys for, for letting me come out. And I strongly recommend the Institute to anyone, uh, even folks who are kind of working on the, the outskirts of security issues as I am. Excellent. Well, we're, we have you on today because you're working on some really interesting things related to secrecy. And the first thing I want to talk about is the Open by Default project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm working on this access to information project uh, that's been slow, slow brewing for a little while. A lot of my research focuses on how law protects secret information and in particular trade secrets and confidential information. So information that is economically valuable. And that's in a bunch of different contexts from economic espionage, all the way to access to information. And I've written quite a bit about how the access to information framework that we have in Canada protects trade secrets and confidential information. And I've also used the system myself quite a bit. I, I, I don't know, do you file ATIPS? Are you, are you someone who uses the system? I have in the past. I haven't done it lately, but I, I did do it when I was working on the Afghanistan stuff. I found some, some stuff came pretty quickly. Some stuff came very, very slowly. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of folks who get fatigued using the system at the Institute. Obviously, Chatham House rules from the Institute, so we can't attribute anything to anyone. But there were several folks talking about their experiences, uh, both filing these requests and then also on the other side, processing the requests. And it was uh, it was really interesting to hear the different perspectives of things. So one of the things I've been doing for a few years now is collecting access to information requests, so copies of requests that have been processed uh, with you know redactions here and there. And I've got this huge database of thousands and thousands of requests. And I've been, do been doing it because a lot of the requests get destroyed by the federal government uh, after a certain amount of time. Really? Uh, yeah, so access to information requests are not treated as archival materials by Library and Archives Canada. They're treated as business records for different hmm. institutions, federal institutions. And because they're not archival, they're not subject to the requirements to preserve under the Library and Archives Canada Act. Instead, they're subject to self-determined preservation and disposition guidelines that federal institutions themselves will set. So some, some great actors out there like the RCMP, you know, really preserve their records. They, they keep a, they, you know, they keep the history really well, but a lot of other institutions don't. And so I, I just wanted to start preserving those records and start collecting them. So I had thousands and thousands of records. And then uh, over the summer and well, maybe over the spring, I, I had a, a conversation with someone. I'm on a trivia team here in Kamloops. I had a conversation with someone on my trivia team who can code databases. And we started talking about what we could do to make a cool database out of this project. And mm -hmm. we put together a prototype and then we started pitching it. And it, it's just snowballed from there. And now we're doing all kinds of cool things with it. I've got computer science students who are using AI plugins to generate summaries of certain requests. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm 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 stoked. I hope to launch the database in a few months, uh, maybe another month, maybe another two months. When you say requests, do you mean the the just the request for information, or the answer, or the documents that are produced by the answers, or both? So it'll be both. It'll be the request language itself, uh, mm -hmm. likely some kind of summary. Um, mm -hmm. the, the request language, if if it is the summary, um, they're often just the same thing, and then a copy of what was processed itself. And so asking for a copy of a request is known as a uh, an informal request under the act. So for instance, when I got ATA tipped about the letters of intent the commanders in Afghanistan received, mm. you would be posting a line, not only my request for the letter, but you'd also be posting or creating a database that would include 
the documents that I received? Yeah, it, it depends on whether or not the summary, because on the government of Canada's open.canada.ca website, they already make available the summaries of the requests. And for mm -hmm. the most part, those are just the request language. That's the request language itself. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're finessed, they're translated as well. So that, so they might be touched up. But I'm, what I'm really interested in is not the summary language or, or the requester language. It's really a, the copy of the underlying record and making sure that that gets widely disseminated. Because mm -hmm. that copy has gone to you. Yeah. Um, and a few months later, the Open Canada website will put in its data set that's made publicly available information showing that that information was requested and was processed and a certain mm -hmm. number of pages were given, but it's not widely disseminated. And so down the line, I think there's a lot of value that could be derived mm -hmm. from wider dissemination of these records. Are you consciously or unconsciously imitating the National Security Archive of the United States? Well, there's a bunch of different efforts that have been made in Canada so far in this mm -hmm. area. And I see myself following in, in these trends with a few differences. So the Globe and Mail, Tom Cardoso and Robin Doolittle, two journalists at the Globe, mm -hmm. uh, launched the Secret Canada project last summer. The database project, the database aspect of their project came out last summer. Um, and I think I think that's a great first endeavor. They don't make the copies of the requests available. They make the summaries available. But they do it for a bunch of different jurisdictions, and, and they they've really harnessed uh, a lot of different data sets to do that in, in a really cool way. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people who are doing interesting things. There's the Unredacted Project in the UK, which does national security stuff. Professor Tim Sale at U of T has been mm -hmm. doing a lot of stuff with Declassified Canada, mm -hmm. um, really focusing his research on copies of requests from Library and Archives Canada for materials that, you know, may have once been protected as cabinet confidences, but which are no longer subject to those types of protections, because those oh. protections expire after 20 years under the Act. And so there's, there's all kind of interesting folks who have done things. Kevin Walby in Winnipeg has done stuff with access to information and um, law enforcement. And then, of course, there's so many journalists in this space uh, mm -hmm. who've done really cool stuff too, Dean Beebe and Ken Rubin. Yeah. So I'm, okay. I see myself following in their paths. Okay. And so you said this is snowballing. So what was your original intention? What do you hope to achieve? And now, now that this is starting to snowball, what, what is your big goal? Well, what I wanted to do when I started my research was really quantify how much the government is using justifications of trade secrets and confidential information to withhold information. Mm -hmm. So uh, agencies like uh, the Industry Portfolio, Innovation Science, Economic Development Canada, the Procurement Portfolio, what's it called? PSPC, I never remember the acronym, uh, what the acronym stands for. They really use these justifications to withhold information in a lot of their requests. So I started doing some empirical work to figure out how often that was happening. And that's where I thought I was going to take the project. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I've been I've been writing a little bit about economic espionage, and then I was looking to write about it in the context of procurement. I've done a bunch of research on sort of specific procurement cases, like the ArriveCan case and so forth. But I wanted to really distill some some insights from this empirical analysis. But as I started to just collect these records from institutions that I knew were deleting them, it really struck me that there's a public good that could come about from just making these records available and kind of unlocking them in other ways, right? Making them OCR searchable because a lot of the government, you know, documents that you get when you get them are just flat PDFs. And I don't know about you with, with the project you were describing, but I've definitely gotten access to information records that are like 5,000 pages long and, you know, they're not OCR searchable. So you're reading 5,000 pages of like abstruse emails and other documents. So one of the things I, I've, been focusing on with the project too is making all the records OCR searchable. And so I've been, partnering, 
with the Investigative Journalism uh, Foundation. They have an amazing tech team. And that group of folks have just been vital in, in kind of getting us these technologies to kind of unlock the real potential of these records. So, uh, yeah, so that's sort of where it's all coming from. Okay, well, that, that's, that's amazing. So, I mean, you, you realize that you're gone from having a specific research project and now creating a public good. They'll help a lot of folks out. So, I guess, what has been the biggest surprise in, in this endeavor? There have been a few surprises along the way, that's for sure. Uh, the government has been an interesting part of the story because a lot of federal institutions have gotten wind of what I've been doing and have been supportive of it. So when the when the project started, you know, I started requesting, I just started requesting lots of records as soon as I knew this is what I wanted to do. So I started amping up my requests. And I had several federal institutions that just said, you know, great idea, you know, here, we're going to get you the records. And access to information units across the federal government communicate with requesters in all different kinds of ways. Yes. So for example, they'll give you, a, some will give you a USB, some will email you a record, some will still send you CDs, you know, the communication security establishment, our technical authority for cybersecurity and our national <laughs> insists on giving you a CD. Uh, that's a good sign for, you know, where we're at in these in these fields in Canada. Yeah. Um, you know, some some will just ignore you, right? You know, there's there's so few real consequences for ignoring requesters. So, and especially people who are just requesting copies of previously requested materials. There are no rights to provide those materials under the Act. So I've, I've advocated that that should change as well. But anyway, it's been interesting to see uh, where the support has come from in government, where it hasn't. There's also been a lot of uh, pushback from certain government actors. I've I had a few phone calls with few government uh, institutions that, you know, have been a little, I would say a little bit hostile to the project as well, uh, including, you know, one unit that I won't name that vaguely threatened to sue me if I were to publish uh, copies of previously released access to information requests for all different kinds of things, you know, for infringing crown copyright or, uh, you know, for publishing third-party information and making sure that those third parties will come after me and sue me. So yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a vague threat, but it's been, it's been interesting. The, there's more of a resistance nowadays in government to disclosing records. I mean, and that's really changed from what the purpose of the act was supposed to be and how it's supposed to operate. Hmm. Well, I, I think you as a lawyer were easily able to tell them to, you know, the law, the threats of lawsuits, you said. You probably laugh in their faces about that one. Well, I mean, crown copyright in access information requested materials is an interesting question. And then uh, the bigger issue is is the uh, I'm not so afraid of the government suing, but one of the real things that I think exists, one of the real concerns that exists, is the threat of liability from uh, a third party whose information uh, the government has released. So the government currently in the Access to Information Act exonerates itself of any liability. There's a complete you know, waiver of any uh, immunization from any liability under the act currently for the government releasing the records. But I, I'm not clear if that extends to third parties. So I think there's a little bit of risk there. I think if a mm -hmm. takedown request did come from a third party, you know, there probably would be an obligation to abide that request, depending on, you know, the seriousness of the concerns of the actor. So anyway, yeah, we will see. We will uh, we will navigate these hurdles as they come. In your sense of things, given that you've looked at the UK, you've looked at other examples, people in the Canada have been complaining a lot about the ATIP process. Do you think it's worse here than other democracies, that we have the same problems? Are we yeah, less I, transparent? I, 
I think we have serious problems when it comes to our system. And a lot of them stem from the treatment of cabinet confidences. You know, cabinet confidences in the access to information system in Canada receive the greatest protection of any of our Westminster style allies. And that's for a few different reasons. I mean, it, it, and it stretches all the way back to the um, enactment of the Access to Information Act. The genesis of the act and took place for several decades up until the first form of the act was properly introduced by the Clark government, the very short government of Joe Clark. Um, and then ultimately uh, was picked back up by the uh, government of Pierre Trudeau in the early 80s. And when it was reintroduced, it didn't seem that the that the law was going to pass until in 1983, I believe, the Trudeau government you know, took the law that had been proposed and some form or other it had been proposed since back to 1965. And the Johnson administration had passed its Freedom of Information Act in 1966. So we, we were really slow to come to this area, right? And, you know, countries that we do tend to look to, like the Scandinavian countries, France, I mean, these countries started to pass access to information laws throughout the 70s. So, so we were slow to this, but once the Pierre Trudeau government really got the ball ro rolling in the early 80s, it wasn't clear it was going to pass until at the very last minute, you know, they took the law, they revised it, and they inserted this strong protection uh, against uh, the disclosure of cabinet confidences. So it really starts all the way back there. And since then, the things that have happened with the implementation of the law uh -huh. have just served to make uh, the cabinet confidences protections even even more expansive in the way that they're they're now determined by the departmental legal services units they're they're more easily determined some of the destruction practices uh, around cabinet confidences are really troubling i i put in an access to information request with the privy council office uh, to see you know how long they're keeping the record the underlying records that they uh, redact as cabinet confidences and during the pandemic you know, everything shifted from we're going to keep these records for 10 years to two years. And that, that change happened about, you know, two or three years ago with the pandemic. So it's just it's getting worse. And the system is really underfunded. You know, there's there's really clear data that says this system costs at least $200 million to do properly. The current system is funded to the tune of about $80 million. And, you know, we spend money on things in other ways that we don't need to, like uh, advertising. You know, one of the best ways to fight misinformation or disinformation would be releasing real information, uh, which doesn't seem to be a priority. And instead, we focus on, we spend more on our advertising, the federal government's efforts than we do releasing information that is uniquely under the control of the federal government. Yeah, I've, I've been long time banging that drum about the, the Canadian government was just a little more adult about things, a little more willing to take a bit of a risk and sharing more information. There would be less confusion. I mean, the example I always use is that during Afghanistan, you know, we had this unending controversy over the treatment of detainees in Afghanistan. Right. The Harper government would be saying things like, well, yeah, the Afghans are might be beating some of the folks that have been detained, but not anybody that we sent over. And that that just reeked of, of BS. Whereas what they could have said is the the honest truth, which is, and this is a, the truth I stumbled upon as part of an academic tour in 2007, where we were in Kandahar and they said, hey, you want to take a look at the temporary detainment facility? We said, sure. And so we went over and they were saying, yeah, we were obligated to turn people over within 96 hours, but we, but sometimes we stop that when we hear about an accusation of abuse. Like, Sounds good. So if the Harbor government had simply said, you know, Afghanistan has different standards for treating detainees. Every NATO country operating in Afghanistan faces this problem. We're doing the best we can to make sure that if we hear an accusation, we don't turn people over. But it's a complicated situation and we have limited ability to, to monitor everything, right? They could have just said that and 
that would been, you know, what would could the opposition say to that? Instead, they're like, no, nothing's going on. And it's like, well, okay, now you're going to think, you know, people are going to see smoke and think there's fire. So more transparency would absolutely be better and, and, and would be a way to handle this situation. Uh, just to that point, I think sometimes this instinct to maintain secrecy often creates a story where there might not be one, right? I think that's the, that's the piece that I find really interesting. I mean, there's there's so many examples in which, you know, it's the cover-up is so much worse than the crime. You know, just this instinct to conceal, this instinct to prevent disclosure, this instinct to make sure that the, the that this information doesn't fall into the hands of someone who you don't necessarily trust with that information. It's acting on that instinct that often creates the real story. So, it, I mean, it is true that access to information tips make stories, right? Like, that's what they do. They're, they're about transparency and accountability of government. That's the purpose of the Access to Information Act. You know, the sponsorship scandal started with an access to information request. All, all of these huge stories in, in Canadian history, you know, come from that. But I firmly believe a lot of the the real problem is is in the cover up. It's not the you know, yeah. it, it's not the actual information itself. And the media loves a cover up. They cover that more intensively than than the thing. So for things I care about. You know, the coverage of the sexual misconduct stuff under Vance became less about what is systematic within the military? Why haven't we implemented these 500 recommendations? And it became more about when did the information get from the ombudsman to Saijan, who was Minister of National Defense at the time? And yep. then when did that get in the hands of the clerk? And when did that get in the hands of the prime minister? You know, they always want to know that kind of thing. And, and this gets me to the cabinet confidence thing, which is it does become sort of the secret sauce that covers everything where, oh, well, this is something that was part of a package we set up the cabinet, so therefore we can't. And it's like, this is where all the interesting stuff is, that if you can't know what, what, the, what the cabinet is being advised to do, then you can't hold them accountable for decisions because you don't know what information they had, you don't know what they were adjudicating. And it would seem to be that you know, for historians, you know, forget political scientists, go back to the historians, they would like to have this information so that way they can trace the course of decision making and say, wow, the PM was poorly advised here, or the PM didn't use the advice he was given. But no, 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 we must protect the sanctity of the advice so that way people can be open. As if there aren't, isn't enough, you know, aren't already pre-existing pressures within the system to protect every agency from any kind of responsibility. I mean, the counter arguments are strong, right? There, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized that cabinet confidence is essential to good government. It's essential to this style of government that is, you know, cabinet ministers who, you know, swear an oath uh, as privy councillors. And when they're around that cabinet table, that they have the ability to speak their minds freely and to encourage free, uh, free conversation and, and debate. I mean, you know, query whether that's happening at all. Uh, but, <laughs> but I, I mean, even if we accept you know, those justifications for cabinet confidence, there's really no justification for how easy we've made it to invoke this this exclusion. And, and there's no justification for the fact that we've made it an exclusion, not an exemption. So under the act, we've said cabinet competences are completely not, uh, not covered by the act. So the moment the government says this is a cabinet confidence, there's no review mechanism. Whereas if we say something is a law enforcement exemption or a trade secrets exemption, there's a review mechanism because the information commissioner can at least review the material to say, yeah, this is a law enforcement issue and that exemption does apply here. Um, so, you know, these changes really do need to 
need to come into uh, need to come into the act. And the review power is one of them. The proper preservation of these records is another one. That's what I'm hoping my um, project will help you know push back against. And and yeah, and there and there's certainly other changes. There's no shortage of of reviews of the access to information system over the years that generally target uh, cabinet confidences alone. Let's switch topics a little bit, which is I was scanning your your publications and you've written about ArriveCan. What are the big lessons from the ArriveCan experience? From, from your perspective? For me, there's a there's a few different ones to distill. I, I think one of the most interesting ones is that the underlying uh, technology that ArriveCam was using was pretty simple AI technology. Yeah. And I think it's a really good test case for looking at how the federal government has outsourced the delivery of core goods and services to third parties, in particular consulting companies that then outsource that work again, to other third parties. Mm -hmm. um, this is an interesting blind spot for you know, accountability and transparency in government, because really the only tool we have to get any accounting or any transparency is the Access to Information Act. But anytime the government contracts with a consulting company that then subsequently subcontracts that, that underlying project to someone else, those subcontracts are all treated as third-party information or confidential Pri information. Proprietary uh, information, yes. Yeah, and there's there was a, a figure from the procurement portfolio who came to one of the standing committees at, at the House of Commons and said that really clearly. Like, we treat that information as third-party information. So this is really interesting because there were five basic companies that did the consulting work on the ArriveCan app, but the subcontracting companies were in the dozens. Yes. And, and even the names of those companies were were not subject to disclosure at, at certain points. And wow. and the and the amount that's the amounts that were being spent were also not subject to disclosure. Now this is really interesting because the government straight up admitted that the underlying technology was you know glitching at one point and sending these incorrect quarantine orders to people. So due to faulty technology or, or problems in in the code, it was just glitching and sending a quarantine order to people, stay inside your home, don't, like this kind of thing. So these, in, in, in the thousands, right? This was over 10,000 people who received these faulty quarantine orders. So it's a really interesting case for what AI governance will look like when things go wrong and how we'll get accountability and how we'll get transparency and what types of reviews will take place. You know, the government doesn't really have the capacity to develop these technologies in-house, right? It's not going to be able to do it at speed. It's not going to be able to do it efficiently. So it, it has to outsource it. But the moment we start to outsource these technologies, you know, and this delivery of, you know, a good or a service from the federal government to a third party, and then any aspect of that work is shielded behind a subcontract that's considered confidential information. This is going to be really challenging for, you know, Canadians trusting government, because if they're dealing with a tech company whose work is completely considered proprietary, and, you know, a lot of the the elements of AI are, are, are getting these treatments, they're, they're protected under these doctrines, it's really going to stymie trust in, it's really going to present challenges for trust in government. Yeah, no, it, it becomes... A deliberate strategy, which is let's have somebody else do it, so that way we don't have any accountability either from us. We don't have any, and they won't have any either. Yeah, I believe that one of the main services that you get from contracting with these consultant companies that don't actually do any work themselves, but then subcontract it to someone else, is secrecy. Right? For all intensive purposes, those consulting companies are just middlemen. Right? They take their 20, 30, 40% cut, 
uh, by identifying other people to do the work. So in a weird way, they operate like lobbyists, but they're not covered by the lobbying legislation that we have in Canada because of the way that that legislation is in particular written. And so one of the things that really needs to happen is along with this reform around access to information uh, and, and reforming the act so that you know, this act, which was introduced in 1983, and we've had it for 40 years now, and it hasn't really gone through meaningful change, just tweaks. We need to kind of update that act to address the technological reality that we live in. But we also need to look at lobbying legislation and, and sort of this influence legislation to see why actors like these consulting companies are not being covered because they're not doing any of the work themselves. They're, they're essentially operating as lobbyists. And so it's not clear to me why they're not covered by that act or why they should not be covered by the act or other. It's, it's, it's clear why they aren't, but we do need to kind of fold them into that. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate your insights and all this stuff. I'm glad you're out there collecting this data because I did mention the National Security Archive that is for the American facility that has done sort of some enterprise of collecting all this, all these declassified documents so that when there's a one stop shopping uh, for this kind of thing. And given the basic attitude in, in Ottawa by the government about this stuff, definitely need to have people like you outside the process holding them to account. And and getting a better understanding of of how this process works because we need to fix it. It, it. No government will want to fix it because they don't want to be more transparent because then they get to be held accountable. But it needs to get fixed so that way we do get better government. Matt, I really appreciate what you're doing. I'm glad we had a chance to meet at the Summer Institute. You really were an important contributor to the conversations. So I'm glad that you're, you will continue to hang out with us via the podcast and, and everything else you do down the road. We're very happy to have more folks from out in the hinterlands, uh, <laughs> such as Kamloops, uh, be part of, uh, of our network. So good luck with this massive project. I think it's going to make Kamloops and you an epicenter of, of some major important stuff going on for far longer than you ever had any intention. Well, I'm I'm definitely excited for folks who work in national security and law enforcement to use it. Um, there's going to be, you know, I got thousands of records from DND, from RCMP. I've got lots and lots of records from CSIS, from CSE. So folks who are working uh, in areas where they want to look at these actors and access those records, I'm super excited to make them available, searchable, usable in, in really great ways. Yeah. And I have to say too, I mean, the project is not just about, it's not just about academics. And I think one of the things is the reality is government actors often have their hands tied in terms of what they feel they can do because they have to comply with the Official Languages Act. They have to apply uh, comply with accessibility legislation. And sometimes it can be a little bit easier for actors on the outside like myself to, to pivot. So I, I really want to say that I appreciate folks on the inside who do all these work, both processing these requests, making them available. And I'm trying to find ways to to collaborate with them too, to cooperate with them. It's not just a, it's access to information shouldn't just be uh, an adversarial uh, relationship. So anyway, Steve, thanks for having me on. And really thank you for everything you do with the CDSN and uh, the Summer Institute was absolutely incredible. I'm hyping it up to everyone I know who <laughs> works around these things. It was, it was really good. I heard about it through a random Leah West tweet that I saw. Uh, and uh -huh. I was like, that looks really cool. So I, you know, I, I'm definitely going to be sharing this widely with folks. This was when I still had Twitter. I, I don't anymore. But yeah, it was it was really, really awesome for, for networking, for meeting folks from really different sectors. The readings were, were awesome. And, and just the environment that you guys have down there is, is fantastic. The team you built. So anyway, thanks fantastic. again. Fantastic. I appreciate it. And uh, good luck. And good luck with the rest of your semester. Yep. You uh, enjoy the rest of your sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Steve. Bye.